Now, it's my privilege this morning to introduce to you uh, a good friend of mine. And this is one of the cool things about COVID. <clears throat> Brandon and I have been friends for nearly two years. And we met this morning in person for the very first time. And so Brandon's, uh, uh, he's been in ministry down in the Waterloo region for um, almost 25 years. And uh, we've become good friends over monthly Zoom meetings over the last two years in a thing called Jesus Collective. And, and I wanted him to come up and, uh, and share with us as part of our Luke series. And the little mini-series we're in right now is a part of Luke about rituals, rules, and religion. And so I'm going to invite Brandon to, to come on up. And uh, his family's here with him. And I was teasing him that here at New Life, families have to stand and sing a song. But uh, we're not going to have them do that this morning. But we are glad that you're here. And Brandon, um, thank you for being willing to come and to share with us. And um, yeah, like it's just so good to see you in 3D. And you're not just a flat screen, so... I, I hope the smile's real and I didn't disappoint. <laughs> Some so, of us are just better on video, I don't know. So I'm going to just hand it over to Brandon and he's going to just share with us and walk us through, um, through the scriptures this morning. Thanks, my friend. Yes, very good to be here with you guys. Uh, most of my family made it out here. My youngest, 17-year-old, did not. He decided to sleep in instead. Uh, but generally speaking, my family actually loves the Collingwood area. We had discovered this in a new way at the beginning of this pandemic. And so basically, uh, my wife, when we were all in those little bubbles, remember, where you just couldn't see anyone outside of whoever was in your house? And my wife had this great idea. She's like, well, if we all have to stay together, why don't we go to like a better place than our house? So uh, she found this off-season condo um, just outside of the village uh, at Blue Mountain. And we stayed there, and we discovered all kinds of things. We would bike into the village. We did the hike up the mountain. We would hang out and get fries at Sunset Point. Uh, we would jump off the pier. And we sat on a picnic table and waited an hour for our dinner to be ready at the smoke because, as I'm sure you all know, it's just worth the wait, right? It's just worth the wait. It is. So it's great to be in this town again. And specifically, it's great to be here uh, at New Life as we crack open the Bible and continue to see what, how these ancient and yet somehow completely relevant words have to say to us today. Now, the one thing that we can't do is fail to take this sacred book seriously. We have to wrestle with its contents until we're blue in the face. We need to, need to pray its prayers. We need to cling to its promises. And we need to in, avoid using it as a weapon, even though we might be tempted at times, and instead offer its words of hope and life and peace to anyone who has ears to hear. But here's the kicker. If we're not careful, we can be lulled into thinking that in our reading of the Bible, we have somehow come to understand a life of faith. Like, we've got it figured out. But when, meanwhile, we're not even close to the full understanding that we can come. And something is happening on this stage. I just, I feel like a rumbling, like something is, is going to happen here this morning. This is great. So this morning, we're going to continue, again, in your series through Luke, in a passage from Luke chapters 5 and 6, and it features a number of interactions where some folks were convinced that they pretty much had things figured out, they understood what a life of faith was all about, uh, and they instead watched a skilled artist, a skilled spiritual artist, paint a new picture for them of what a life that is rooted in what, how God has created us to be really looks like. And so, as Paul mentioned, this mini-series, Rituals, Rules, and Religion, uh, in this morning's text, we're going to in be introduced to someone who challenges all three of these, and that person was Jesus. So before we get to the specific passage that Paul asked me to share about, uh, a little bit of context, because context 
is everything. Context matters. If you don't understand the context of what we're reading, you can get in trouble. So I had this example. Our family was in Florida a few weeks ago, and as we're driving down the street, I see the bumper car of this person in front of me, and it has a sign on it. It says, let's go, Brandon, which is my name. And I said, hey, isn't that great? It's like, that was the most encouraging thing I've seen all day. Let's go, Brandon. I was like, this is great. So we head down to the beach, and then a couple of the kids went off on their own, and then I thought, oh, after a while, I'll go find them. So I go wandering down the beach on my own, and I see this guy walking down the beach. So as you can see, he has a giant flag that says, let's go, Brandon. And he's got this thing strapped around his shoulder. It's like a ghetto blaster. He's like walking down. He's got all this music blaring and he's got the dog and everything. And people are like walking up to him. They're taking selfies. They're like treating him like he's a celebrity. I'm like, what is going on here? So a little while later, the kids wanted to do some shopping. And so I hopped on the Wi-Fi of the store they were in and I Googled, what is let's go, Brandon? I'm like, why does everyone have these signs everywhere? Well, apparently, there was like a NASCAR event at some point in time, and the entire crowd started chanting, uh, not let's go, Brandon. They started chanting something Joe Biden. And uh, one of the reporters who was there misunderstood the crowd, and she live on the air said, the crowd has broken into a spontaneous cheer of let's go, Brandon. And then all the people who don't like Joe Biden were like, oh, that's our new slogan. So all over the place, bumper stickers, guys on the beach with flags. Anyways, my name has been soiled. So context is everything. It went from being encouragement to not encouragement at all. All right, so a little bit of background to Luke 5 and 6. The first encounter that we're going to read about, it comes on the heels of actually a couple of uh, other stories from the early days of Jesus' public ministry. The first one will be familiar to anyone who's been in church for a while, is a story of Jesus healing a a man who was paralyzed. And so in this particular story, there wasn't any way for this man's friends to bring him to Jesus. The crowd was too full. And so they actually tore open part of the roof. They lowered him down on a stretcher. And you would think that the thing that happens next is that Jesus healed him, but that's not exactly what happened. What happened is that Jesus actually says, your sins are forgiven. Now, there were some Pharisees, some of the religious elite of the time, some teachers of the law around, and they weren't too happy about this. They asked the question, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus hears them and says, okay, well, to prove that I have that authority, I'll just heal him as well, which he does. The very next story happens. Jesus calls a man named Matthew, and in some uh, cases Levi, to follow after him. Now, Matthew or Levi was a tax collector, uh, kind of a despised person in the day. Um, We all love tax collectors today, but in the day they didn't, right? Um, So they didn't really like him, but Jesus decides to to call him to be one of his followers, and Matthew responds by saying, hey, I'm going to throw a dinner party at my house, and I want you to come. And so Jesus comes over, and he hangs out with this group of tax collectors, and once again, these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, they're there, and they start questioning him. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So these are the two stories that happen right preceding Luke chapter 5. The context, it's a growing suspicion on the part of the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, that this unknown Jesus fellow doesn't seem to be interested in playing by the rules, and specifically their rules. Okay, so that's the context. Now we can dive in. Luke 5, we'll start with verses 33 to 35. They said to him, so the same group of people, John's disciples often fast and pray. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered them, Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and in those days they will fast. Now let's be clear from the outset, Jesus was not opposed to fasting at all. In fact, 
If we go back just a little further in Jesus' ministry, the first kind of thing that happened publicly was his baptism. And what did he do immediately after his baptism? He went out into the wilderness and he fasted. Matthew's gospel says, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I've been thinking that I want to stencil this on the wall of our kitchen. Because sometimes, you know, my youngest son, he'll come to the the pantry and he'll open the doors and he'll just be like, there is no food in this house. And I want him to read the verse. After 40 days, Jesus was hungry. Like, have you gone without food for 40 days? No. So be quiet. (laughs) Abstaining from food for spiritual purpose, it was part of the fabric of ancient cultures, not just among the Hebrew people, but among all cultures. But in the Hebrew people, it specifically was. We can go back to the beginning story, the origin stories of our faith, uh, Genesis chapter 2. We read in verse 16 and 17, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So the first command that God ever gave to humanity was to avoid eating certain foods. Now, technically, that's not fasting. I'm stretching it a little bit here. But it illustrates the truth that at times, going without food for a spiritual purpose can actually be beneficial. It can keep us out of trouble. Now, there's an assumption in Jesus' words in our passage from Luke 5 that we might miss out on. So he says, yeah, okay, they're not fasting right now. But he says they will fast. They will. No, I'm not going to put anyone on the spot here this morning, but when was the last time that you fasted? Now, I'm asking this in the middle of Lent, so possibly, since Lent is a season of fasting, some of you are participating in that, but fasting is not something that we tend to talk about a whole lot these days. It was very important in Jesus' day, but not so much today. Fasting has a lot of value to spiritual life. It helps us uh, pay attention in new ways, pay attention to ourselves in new ways, to other people in new ways, to God in new ways. Andrew Murray, uh, who was a pastor and author in the 19th century, he writes that fasting helps us to express, to deepen, and to confirm the resolution that we are ready to sacrifice everything, even ourselves, to attain what we seek for the kingdom of God. In the Hebrew Bible, fasting happened along with prayer often for victory in battle, for uh, recovery from famine, for success in certain endeavors. If we think about the story of Esther, the famous story of Queen Esther, where she had this question she needed to ask the king, she was very nervous about it, and so she called the people to fast along with her because she had this really difficult task to do. In the prophet Joel, chapter 1 and verse 14, announce a holy fast, proclaim a sacred assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the temple of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. So when things got serious, when things were, when there was trouble in the air, Go without food. Abstain from this so you can focus more closely on God. So this practice, it has deep roots in Jewish thought and practice, which we can, is why we can assume that it bothered the teachers of the law that Jesus did not seem to be promoting it. You're going around teaching. You're going around doing all these great things. Why are you not promoting this important aspect of the spiritual life? Well, as Jesus makes clear in both the way that he lived and in his verbal response to the teachers of the law, Fasting is an important part of the spiritual life, but he wants to be equally clear that it is not a law to be followed out of religious obligation. Now, the second part of this reading this morning, it picks up a different theme, but I think you'll notice a pattern. So for this one, it's Luke chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? 
A few weeks ago, I got a letter in the mail, and when I cracked it open, there was a big, bold thing at the top. It said, final notice. And I'm like, final notice? For what? Apparently, so this is like three weeks ago I get this in the mail. Apparently, on September 23rd, I got a parking ticket. I guess I parked my car on the road overnight, and I got a parking ticket. Um, and apparently, I had not responded to this parking ticket, and I had not paid this parking ticket. And so now I had all kinds of late fines and other fines, and basically they were warning me if I didn't pay it by this date, they were going to like send the collector after me. And I'm like, final notice? This is the first I've heard of this. Like, I pay parking tickets. Actually, last time I was in Collingwood, I got a parking ticket, and I paid it. I pay my parking tickets, so how can this possibly be the last thing? I have no interest in breaking the law for the sake of breaking the law. Now, fortunately, I went down and sweet-talked my way into a reduced fine, and, and all is good now. I don't break the law. I don't just, like, disregard the law. But this is kind of what they were saying Jesus was doing. It's like, why are you just totally disregarding the law? Like, you know that you can't harvest on a Sabbath day, and here you are doing it. Who do you think you are? Well, Jesus responds by pulling out a story from a thousand years in the past to call into their question their entire Jewish understanding of the Sabbath. He tells the story, he said, well, haven't you heard of David? He's totally name-dropping here because David is one of their people that they would really look up to. He says, haven't you heard about David? There was this time where David and his men, they were really hungry. They went into the house of God and they actually ate the sacred bread that the priest had there, which is forbidden. The priest was the only one who was able to eat that, but David and his men, they all shared that meal. Haven't you heard that story? So David, who we, we all know you look up to, he was, seemed to be fine with breaking this Sabbath. And then he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So let's go back again to Genesis, this time verses, chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. When we observe Sabbath, we, the rhythm of creation is reenacted in our life. Work, 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 and rest. Work, 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 and rest. Now, this is actually the first time that the word holy is used in the Bible, and it's to re- used to refer to time, that there is a day that is holy. The book of Hebrews says that anyone who enters into God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. But in our day, we might ask the question, who can afford to set a day aside as actually holy? Like, if I have a day off from work, I've got other work I've got to do. There's lots of stuff to be done. I read this book a number of years ago by a Canadian author. The book was called In Praise of Slow. And he has this great line. He says, the whole world is time sick. We all belong to the same cult of speed. We're addicted to doing stuff to being busy all the time. We can't slow down. And it was this book, not written from a religious perspective, but just saying, like, there's value in slowing down. Well, there has always been value, which is why God said, set this day aside as holy. But this is just the way things are. This is the world I live in. How could I ever live that way? There are a lot of different questions, a lot of things that challenge that in our lives. But Eugene Peterson wants us to strike a balance. He says that Sabbath and work, they're not in opposition. Sabbath and work are part of an organic whole. Either apart from the other is maimed and crippled. If all you do is work, then you're not living a a full life of faith. If all you do is rest, well, that's not a very full life either. It's about balance. God created for six days, rested for one, and calls us to enter into that same pattern. And that rest from work looks like not just whatever you do for a job, but rest from productivity, from physical exhaustion, from hurry, 
from multitasking, from worry, competitiveness, from decision-making, rest from getting caught up on things, from talking, maybe a rest from technology. It's a rest. And people of faith have long understood the benefits of this. There's this beautiful passage from Isaiah 58. If you keep your faith from breaking the Sabbath, if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. So again, the significant value of this day deeply woven into the heart of Jewish thinking. Now in Mark's gospel, Jesus adds another line to his response. When they say, why are you breaking this holy day, this sacred day? Why aren't you observing this? So Jesus says, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And then Mark adds, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, many years ago, when our kids were really young, we lived in a semi-detached home. And when we first moved into this house, uh, one of the first conversations I had with our neighbor was about mowing the lawns, because we had a shared front lawn. And he said, listen, he's like, one thing I can't stand is these people who, like, they share a lawn, but they only mow half of it. And so you got someone mows half their lawn, and they leave the other half unmowed. He said, can we just, like, strike out a deal right from the start that we'll just mow the whole front lawn, you do it one week, I do it the next week. I'm like, yes. Sounds like a great deal. Anything to get along with my neighbors. This is wonderful. So we got this pattern. But life was busy. You know, we had little kids, and we had, you know, a student church that we had planted, and we were just busy all the time. And so this one particular time, it's like the lawn was getting longer and longer, and I knew it was my turn. I'm like, I, I have to mow the lawn. So I get out the lawn more, and I get like maybe three strips of the lawn done, and my neighbor comes bursting out of the front door of his house. And he says, what the something are you doing? And I'm just like standing there, I turn the lawnmower off. I'm like, I'm mowing the lawn. On a Sunday? On Mother's Day? What kind of a Christian are you? This is what he says to me. I'm just standing there mowing the lawn. What kind of a Christian are you? And then he slams the door and goes back into the house. I just left it, I three strips mowed, I was like, Obviously, I have to stop here. I've, I've broken this law. And I was like, wow, I'd never had anyone like call me on that before. That was really interesting. So Jesus was faced with a similar confrontation, all right, in Luke chapter 6. He's confronted, but he did not actually stop mowing. He responded differently than I did. I was like, oh, keep the peace. Jesus is not interested in keeping the peace. All right, so same chapter, Luke 6. Verses 6 to 8. On another Sabbath, okay, so there was the one where him and his disciples were eating, and the teachers of the law didn't like that. Um, and then on another Sabbath, G Jesus went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Now, the Pharisees' judgment wasn't loud and accusatory. They didn't say, what on earth do you think you're doing? This is the Sunday. You know, they didn't say that. They, they were quiet, but Jesus knew what they were thinking. Now, again, it's hard for us to kind of understand this. For Jesus to be breaking the Sabbath was significant. In the Old Testament book of Exodus, chapter 35, listen to 
listen to how they would have understood this day. The seventh day shall be your holy day, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it must be put to death. So you have to understand, like, it's not like these people were way out of line when they're wondering, like, why is this person breaking this command? Why is he doing work? So Jesus is standing there in front of everyone with this man with a shriveled hand standing there in front of everyone. And he says to the people, he's like, like, what, it, what is this day for? Is this a day for doing good or for doing evil? Like, what, what is this day really all about? And he looks at the man and he says, stretch out your hand. He just kept mowing that lawn. He didn't stop. He's like, this is what this day is all about. The Sabbath was not made, uh, man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. So Jesus makes it clear in both the way that he lived and in his verbal response to the teachers of the law that Sabbath observance, it is an important part of the spiritual life, but it is not a law to be followed out of religious obligation. If you can help or bless someone else, if someone else is in need, then that law needs to take the back seat. That's what Jesus is teaching here. Now, this is a passage about fasting and about Sabbath keeping, but it's really about something so much more important than either of those. What might have been lost in Jesus' answer, the part where he says about the bridegroom, like who fasts when the bridegroom's with them, what might have been lost in that is he was actually referring to himself as the bridegroom. He's like, the reason my disciples aren't fasting is that I am the bridegroom. And he just like he identified himself as the Lord of the Sabbath. And so when people, when you have an opportunity to be with me, like that's the thing that matters the most, not these rules, not these religious things. Now, Luke was far less interested in promoting spiritual practices, even really significant ones, and genuinely helpful ones like Sabbath-keeping and fasting. He was less interested in promoting these things than he was in promoting Jesus. And the simple truth that every single one of us tends to forget from time to time is that nothing, nothing, nothing matters more than Jesus. Now, let's be clear. Neglecting fasting and abandoning Sabbath rest, that is not going to do anything to benefit our spiritual well-being. There is a reason that these things are encouraged. There are a reason that they have thousands of years of history in our faith tradition. So abandoning these things, it's not going to make you more spiritual. But here's the big idea. The corrective that Jesus came to bring, and which this passage makes clear, is that holding on to anything, no matter how sacred at the expense of a living encounter with Jesus or at the expense of the well-being of others, well, that's a grave mistake. It doesn't matter how important or religious or sacred we think something is. If we are turning back on an opportunity to be with Jesus or to genuinely be with other people, then we're in trouble. One author, Bill Leonard, writes, you can think you're right about the scripture and be wrong about the gospel. Now, the Pharisees and the teacher of the law, they were wrong about the gospel because they were wrong about Jesus. God help us to avoid being wrong about Jesus. Now, in between these two questions posed by the religious leader about why Jesus was breaking the Sabbath is an analogy that I hope can bring things home for us here this morning. So Luke 5, verses 36 to 39. He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it, on an old, sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into 
old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking the old wine wants the new, for he says the old is better. You see, Jesus was aware that what he was teaching and the way that he was modeling, the way of faith he was modeling, he was aware that it would not be easily accepted. I mean, in a sense, how could it be easily accepted? Because when you've acquired a taste for the old wine, why would you swap it out for a new vintage? And this is what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were struggling with. They had this acquired taste for spiritual things. They didn't like this new vintage that Jesus was bringing. But all the same, Jesus was offering and continues to offer us new wine. The fulfillment of the, what the law was never able to do on its own. The fulfillment of promises that were left hanging for centuries. The fulfillment of the deepest needs of humanity to be saved in every way that us humans need to be saved. In our marriages, in our finances, our social institutions. We need to be saved from the injustices of our world, the darkness of war and greed and envy and pride and self-righteousness and a hunger for power. We need to be saved from these and from so many different things, and that is what Jesus comes to offer us. So what does this mean for you, new life? What does it mean for you and for me? What rituals, what rules, what religion might, actually, might we actually be holding on to because we like it or we're used to it or we're comfortable with it? What would we be holding on to because to embrace Jesus and who he is and what he wants for us, well, it might burst everything we know. What might, be we, might we be ready and what we'd be needing to trade in for something new from Jesus today? And what if we trusted Jesus enough to hand over our old wineskins and let him provide us with some new ones? And what if he filled them and what if he filled them to overflowing? Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for the gift of Scripture where we can open up these pages and catch a glimpse of what you were trying to teach us even today. In the things that were taught 2,000 years ago, we are still being taught today. And God, we confess that in many ways, we like hanging on to rules. We like hanging on to these rituals and these religious things. They provide a level of comfort and security and understanding. But God, you are constantly calling us to lay these things down in the service of a relationship with you and with one another. So God, I pray you would give us the courage to stand up and to value our connection with you before everything else. We pray these things and invite your spirit to do this good work in our lives in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, brother. Well, thank you for being here today. Um, just a reminder that uh, if you want to help out with the coffee, um, please sign up for that. Um, next Sunday is good, or is, is good Sunday. Yes, next Sunday is good Sunday, but it's also Palm Sunday. And uh, a friend of ours from Be In Christ Canada, Matt Vincent, will be uh, coming and speaking from Luke 19 about the triumphal entry. And then Good Friday is being hosted here, as we've done in other years, and area Collingwood churches will be gathering together with us for Good Friday. 
That is the 15th at 10 a.m. And uh, we invite you to be part of that. And then, of course, we will celebrate uh, well for Easter. So, Brandon, thank you for bringing that word for us. I love it when our religion or our rituals get in the way of an encounter with Jesus or giving others access to him. Uh, we need to rethink how we're approaching those. And uh, do visit uh, afterwards. Meet somebody new today. Parents, um, just watch for whether the kids are done with their program yet and give them time to wrap up. And uh, while you're waiting, uh, have some conversations. And we will see you um, sometime later this week or next Sunday. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.